We've been uh, spending a lot of time on Pentecost, and I kind of wanted to do one sort of afterglowy thing for, for Pentecost here. Um, I have a friend that I've known for probably seven or eight years, and I kind of fell out of touch for a while, but have just gotten back in touch. And when I met her, she was going through probably the most difficult time in her life, at least that's the way she expressed it. At the time that I met her, she had basically lost her church home. It was, a, it was a church that she had been to for years and was in leadership, and through all the politics and the craziness and some of the things that went on, she found herself on the outside looking in, which was devastating for her to lose that community and lose that connection. And then subsequent to that, because of the, the severity of the break, she started to question her faith, and she didn't know where she was anymore in terms of her faith. And then she lost her job. <laughs> It was just one thing after another. And I remember these long phone calls and longer emails that we would go through. And sometimes she couldn't even catch her breath. She couldn't even breathe because she was just in that, in that mode, you know, that panic mode. And we talked through a lot of this time. And then she started to make little changes here and there. She moved from San Diego County up to uh, Ventura County, I think, and, and she got in with a whole new group of people. She started to kickstart her faith journey again, uh, but in new ways, in personal ways, ways that were personal for her, not just what she had received in, in her faith tradition uh, to that point. She got a new job, and she started working again, and then she found a man, and they are engaged to be married, and Everything just started to go in another direction. And then just recently she found out she had cancer. And it's, it's, I, I can't even imagine the downs, the ups, and this again. And I connected with her just last week and uh, was just, just talking to her and telling her that I had heard and, you know, how was she doing? And she says, well, I just got out of eight hours of chemo. And... I was dumbfounded. Eight hours of chemotherapy? I had no idea. I said, how is that even possible? What do you do for eight hours? And she said, well, it's three hours of hydration and then three hours of chemo and then two more hours of hydration. And I had no idea that hydration was such a big part of chemotherapy, so I had to go and look it up, you know, check the Google gods and find out what was going on because how, how it was just working. Now I get it. You know, it makes, makes perfect sense. When you're dehydrated, the nausea is greater. When you're dehydrated, you're not moving those toxic chemicals through your body, and it made perfect sense. But I just had no idea the kind of time. I mean, I knew the after effects and the side effects of chemo, and this is all what she's going through. And yet the same day that I talked to her and we had this exchange, she posted a video <laughs> that was, and maybe some of you have seen this video, it's taken from 66 different of the great golden age of Hollywood dance movies. And so it's got all the great dancers like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor and all of these guys set to one single you know, upbeat modern song. And she said, this would be great to start your day with. Now, here's the woman who just went through eight hours of chemotherapy, and she is giving us something to start our day with. And it just struck me, that juxtaposition. And as I was, you know, just messaging back and forth with her, you know, she was just straight across telling me what was going on. There is a strength in her. And I was thinking about this. How do you manage? How do you manage these ups and downs that life has handed you? 
And the difference between the way she handled the one that uh, I was more present to all those years ago and the one she's handling now is just night and day. It's amazing. And so I was thinking about that. How do we manage? And what is life supposed to look like post-Pentecost? Because that's kind of where we're headed here. The Jews had a, a unique and wonderful way, I think, of looking at life. They believed that human beings live between heaven and earth. And some of you have heard this from me before, but it's good to reiterate. The idea was that heaven, as they understood it, was the place of complete oneness, complete unity. Everything is one thing, just as God is one thing, right? Multiple things functioning as one, no daylight between. And then earth is the place of individual form and function. Earth is the place of the illusion of separateness, there really isn't separateness, but earth is a place as we're here living in our skin suits where we can feel separated, we can feel alone. It's a place where insecurity and fear can creep in because of that sense of separateness and aloneness and the place where dysfunction and the separation that is sin is all present. And so here we are living between this oneness, this complete unity, and this sense of separation. And the goal or the job of each human being was to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven, which that means to merge the two together, to be able to experience, to, to be able to seamlessly become aware of the unity of everything, the connection of everything, while at the same time we live our separate lives in our separate bodies with that sense of separation, but merging the two together. It's a beautiful concept. But what it points to, what it implies, if it's true, is that as human beings, we are always oscillating between the two, always oscillating between the oneness of heaven and the sense of, of disconnection on earth. And if that's true, then I suppose the measure of a really successful life is one that has learned to love the oscillation, to accept the fact that this is the way life works up and down and back and forth and front to back, always in motion, pendulum always swinging, always oscillating. To make friends with that, as Scott Peck famously said, life is difficult, but once you accept the fact that it's difficult, it's not difficult anymore. This is the first step, to accept that life is this oscillation between heaven and earth. And we can accept that, then things start to become possible. And so... Here we are after Pentecost, and we have been talking about Pentecost for weeks, all through the run-up between Easter and Pentecost. Pentecost was last Sunday. It is the time that the, the scriptures remember when the first followers of Jesus actually broke through to full awareness, full connection with the Spirit. And this was a peak experience for them. This is something that really threw them over the top. And we like to think of life as being uniform. We think that once something starts, it should continue until we turn it off and then something else continues. We like to think it that way, especially if we can get to the long sought after goal. If we can get to that milestone, we can get to that place in life, then we just want it to continue that way forever, right? We don't want there to be any more ups and downs. And when we hear the account in Acts 2 of Pentecost and we hear what the followers were now capable of because of this, this connection with spirit, the implication is, the way we like to think of it is, that that's the way that they carried on for the rest of their lives. That's the way they instituted 
the early church. Let's take a read. Let's take a look at Acts 2. And you don't have it in your bulletins. Uh, I don't know if uh, it's going to go up there. It's okay. Just listen if it's not in front of you in print. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, all these followers of Jesus, all of the twelve, and more besides. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Shavuot, which is the festival, is one of the pilgrimage festivals. And so Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem to do their religious practice there in Jerusalem, as was commanded by Moses. And so here are all these people, and they're hearing them speak in their own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all of these who, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each, each of us hears them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and were with great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. That'll be about nine o'clock in the morning. Okay, from here, Peter goes on to give this amazing speech, even more amazing considering he was an illiterate fisherman from Galilee. And he gives this amazing erudite speech. And from there, over 3,000 of the people who are listening are baptized. And there are healings that are done. And the, and the scripture tells us that the people from there were moved to sell their possessions, sell their belongings, and distribute among the brethren so that widows and orphans and everyone had what they needed. Amazing things are going on here. All of this as a result of this infilling of the Spirit. And when you hear something like this, you think, oh my gosh, to have that kind of experience, that kind of breakthrough, well, that's got to change your life forever, right? But let's take a a look just a few chapters further in Acts 11. Peter has gone now to Joppa, which is right on the coast. It's where Tel Aviv sits now. Uh, Jaffa, as it's called today, is kind of a suburb of Tel Aviv right on the coast. And Peter has gone there. And we'll pick it up where he was praying in the upper deck, probably the roof of the house where he was staying. And he has a vision. And he's going to talk about the vision here. And it prompts him from there to accept the invitation from men who come to his door right after he's, he's had this prayer time alone and asking him to come to Caesarea, which is a Roman city, a Gentile city, just about 30 miles north of Joppa, right on the coast as well, to come to the house of a centurion, who has requested his presence. This is something that a Jew would not do. A Jew would not go into the house 
of a Gentile, someone who stands outside the law. And especially a Jew would not eat with a Gentile or in a family of Gentiles inside their house. That would make them ritually unclean. But Peter does all of this. And when the word gets back to Jerusalem, this is where we pick it up at Acts 11.1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, those who were circumcised, those who were Jews first, who had chosen to follow Jesus, and also believed that everyone who was going to follow Jesus had to be a Jew. That meant if Gentiles were going to come and follow Jesus, they had to follow all of the law of Moses. Men had to be circumcised, you had to follow the dietary codes, you had to follow everything in order to be a follower of Jesus at the same time. This is a party within the church. See, our idea that the cheerly church was all of one accord is just not accurate. It was a street fight. It was the Wild West. Everyone had a different interpretation of what Jesus meant because Jesus didn't give us a strict theology. Jesus didn't give us the, the institution of a church. Jesus gave us a way of living life that would bring us into contact with the Father. No middleman, not even the temple, not even those dietary codes or those sacrificial purity codes. None of those were needed in order to connect directly with Father if you follow this way of Jesus that he said would bring you to the truth and that the truth would make you free. And so everybody had a different idea and they were all fighting among each other at this time. Anything but in one accord. So when Peter comes to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in an orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And so in the sheet that comes down are all these animals that would be unclean, ritually unclean to the Jews. And here's God's voice saying, kill and eat. But a voice from the heaven answered a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And these were the emissaries of Cornelius, the centurion, a Roman official. And Peter goes to them and goes to the house and he eats with them and he preaches to them. And guess what happens? The entire household is baptized. The entire household breaks out into tongues and the Jews who are there are absolutely flabbergasted because they never thought that Gentiles would have this ability to be connected with God in this particular way. This is something in Scripture where we have to read between the lines. And I suppose it's this way with every passage of Scripture. Scripture is so sparse, they just give us the broad outlines. But read between the lines here. Here's Peter. And it's interesting because he was supposed to have been the head of the church, right? And according to our tradition, the first pope and the head of the church. And yet, 
Peter really didn't command the Jerusalem church. That was James, Jesus' brother. James the Just was the Nasir, the, the president, the head of the church in Jerusalem. And Peter is getting dressed down by the elders of Jerusalem, at least the ones in this party. Think of the confusion. Think of what he is going through, trying to figure out his way through all of this. He's hearing from God, but he's also hearing from the elders of his body. What, what is he supposed to do? And this is just the beginning. There's more. Because then when Peter goes from Jerusalem to Antioch, he meets Paul there. And Paul in Galatians 2 has some more words for Peter. Paul's saying, Galatians 2.11, when Cephas, Cephas is just Peter in Aramaic, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul talking. Because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews... How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Wow. Peter's getting it a second time. But what was happening? Peter was vacillating. He had gone to the house of Cornelius, but when he goes to Antioch and to other places, because of the dressing down he got, because of the men who come from James to check up on him, he withdraws. The confusion, the fear, the vacillation, the weakness of him moving from position to position because he's not sure, and now getting dressed down by the elders and now by Paul. We think that these peak experiences are going to create a uniform path for us, but the truth of the matter in Scripture is telling us right now that the oscillation continues. The oscillation never stops. The pendulum never stops swinging. We are always going to be experiencing these ups and downs. The key question is, how do we deal with it? How did Peter deal with it? He kept on. He didn't stop. He got through this period. He stuck out some sort of claim because church tradition is that Peter and Paul reconciled at Rome together. They ministered together and they were martyred together in Rome. He pushed through. He continued to work as if the things that he believed were true, even when he had moved left and right. It's an amazing testimony to how that works if you do that. But there's another story that I love, and this, again, centers around Paul. Paul was a troublemaker, apparently, because he was always getting into some kind of dispute with somebody. But when Paul, remember Paul? He was first a persecutor of the, uh, the Jewish followers of Jesus. And then he had his experience on the Damascus Road. And after that, he comes to Jerusalem. Nobody wants to touch him with a 10-foot pole. They don't trust him. They think maybe he's a spy and he's going to come in and he's going to continue his persecution. Barnabas is the man, the only man who stands up for Paul and says, no, I've seen this man in action. I know what he's about and I know the experience that he had on the road to Damascus. He vouches for him. So finally the eldership is persuaded and they team up Barnabas and Paul and they send them out to the Gentiles. And James and other groups are sent to the Jews. And Barnabas and Paul go on Paul's first missionary journey. And then they come back to Antioch. 
And they continued to minister together for 15 years. 15 years they're together, ministering like each other's right hand. And then they decide to go on a second missionary journey. And Barnabas wants to bring a man named John Mark, who had deserted them on the first missionary journey. And Paul says, no. And pick it up here at Acts 15.36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Again, you've got to read between the lines here. How devastating is it? A friend of 15 years? How many friends do you have of 15 years? that are that close, that you've been working with every single day, sharing the kinds of, of hardships and difficulties that these two men shared, to have a disagreement this sharp that splits them up, and now you're working alone? Think of what that feels like. This is all post-Pentecost stuff. The highs, the lows, the continued oscillations. But what did they do? Barnabas and Mark, and apparently Silas and John Mark, I'm sorry, Barnabas and Paul, John, Mark, and Silas, they continued their work. And the scripture says they continued in the spirit. And their ministries thrived as they continued to work. They got through the break. They got through the low, the devastation, and they came out to the other side because they never stopped working as if the spirit were present, even if they weren't feeling it the way that they felt it before. This is so important for us to see, so important for us to see what's going on. The, the, the shape of this journey is all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. I love that fact that Scripture keeps coming back to us and showing us what our lives look like so that we don't mistake it, that at some point we can embrace this oscillation and not expect it to be something other than it is. David, my namesake, God love him. God did love him. David means beloved of God. David, Right? So here's David. He's a poor shepherd boy. When Saul takes the throne, Saul was the first king of, of Israel. And the first uh, the, the campaigns that Saul had to, to wage in order to be able to solidify his position as king was primarily with the Philistines. And so here comes the first Philistine battle, and there's Goliath, the, the champion of the Philistines. David slay, slays him. David is, is welcomed into Saul's court. David becomes, becomes a chief general. Huge victories against the Philistines and the other tribes around them until the point that the people start singing David's praises, singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul gets jealous. And Saul makes three attempts on David's life, tries to skewer him with a spear. Finally, David realizes he's got to get out of Dodge. And he and some of his men, they flee into the wilderness and they're hiding in caves. And some of David's most beautiful but plaintive psalms were written during this period. And you see that in those psalms. What did David do? He turned to his music. He turned to his poetry. He expressed what it was that he was feeling. And he was singing it to God. Always to God. David was God's beloved no matter how he was behaving. And this is so important for us to see. 
Because David eventually becomes king and unifies the 12 tribes into one kingdom for the first time. But his reign is marred by the decisions that he made. And of course, the most famous is for him to sleep with Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and then to order Uriah into the front lines of the battle so that he would certainly be killed to cover up the fact that he had gotten Bathsheba, his wife, pregnant. And then when they have their son out of that union, the son becomes deathly ill. And David mourns. He won't eat. He won't bathe. You know, he heaps ashes on his head. Nobody can console him until the moment the boy dies. And then he just silently gets up. He washes. He anoints his head with oil. And he takes food. And everybody's amazed. And they said, we couldn't. We couldn't coerce you in any way to do these things. Why do you do them now? And David has this wonderful answer. He said, as long as my son was alive, there was hope. But now that he is gone, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. There is this embrace of life as it is in David. And no matter how far off the track he got, He never doubted God's faithfulness, at least not for long. Even in his Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Flips back and forth between despair and hope, between despair and the remembrance of the faithfulness of God. David continued to act as if he was God's beloved no matter what, and he carried through to the end. But one of my favorite stories is the story of Elijah. And I wanted to spend a little more time with this one and use this kind of as our, I guess our, not a proof text, what would it be? Our model of how this works. It's just so perfectly set out in 1 Kings 18. Elijah was the prophet to the northern kingdom. By this time, David's son Solomon had already died and the kingdom split into north and south. And Elijah was was ministering to the northern kingdom, which had a new king in Ahab, or Ahab, and he took a Phoenician bride as a, as a political military mar- marriage, Jezebel. You probably have heard of her. And, uh, and she continued to worship the gods of her heritage, the Baals, and, uh, and then got her king to do the same, and the whole kingdom was turning back to um, Canaanite deity worship. And so here comes Elijah to try to turn the tide, and all the prophets of Israel, but Jezebel is, is putting contract hits out all of them and getting the, having them all killed. Elijah's the only one left, and he goes into hiding, but he comes back out at God's request. And they have this scene on Mount Carmel, which is amazing, a final showdown between the Baal gods and the god Yahweh. And we pick that up at 1 Kings 18, 25 to 29. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leapt about the altar which they made. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a louder voice, for he is a god. Either he's occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Don't you love the fact that sarcasm was alive and well 3,000 years ago? I just think this is perfect. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, that is as good as it gets. I mean, this is sarcasm worthy of Pastor Frank. I mean, it's just perfect <laughs> sarcasm. It's great. So they cried with a loud voice and they cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention. So now we skip down to First Kings 18 again, but verse 31. So it's Elijah's turn. And he took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar and also filled the trench with water. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Talk about a peak experience. A pinnacle of Elijah's career. That should change his life, right? That should keep him going constantly throughout whatever was the rest of his ministry. But what happens? After this, of course, they kill the 450 prophets of Baal. And when Jezebel hears about it, she puts a hit out on Elijah. And she says, let God do to me what I don't do to you if by this time tomorrow you're not dead. And Elijah splits and runs in terror for his life. He goes out a day's journey into the wilderness abandons his servant, and he just falls under a juniper tree. And he prays for death. He says, it's over. You know, just let me die. And while he's lying there, an angel comes and feeds him, and then feeds him a second time, he says, because you need this for your journey. And then on the third day, he gets up and he goes 40 more days and nights into the wilderness and comes to the mountain of Harab. And there he just goes into a cave and lodges there. And this is where we pick it up at 1 Kings 19, verse 9. Then Elijah came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, the Lord said to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And so the Lord said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountain and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. 
after that experience at Carmel, he was not immune to the oscillation of his life. He wasn't immune to the ups and downs, his emotions reacting, the fear that came over him when circumstances changed. But what did Elijah do? Even after going so far off track, he remembered the sound of his master's voice. He remembered to hear it in the insignificant things, in the tiny things, not to continue to look for it in everything that was spectacular, but to pull in, to quiet down. And when that soft blowing came, he knew to just wrap his mantle around his face and go out to meet his God. He remembered and he responded to the Lord's voice. To be drawn back into connection, to be drawn back into conversation with our God, with each other, is to live the oscillations of our life. They are always going to be there. No matter who you are, no matter the quality of your peak experiences, they will always be ups and downs. When life just seems perfect, (laughs) how long does it stay that way? The pendulum is always swinging, always moving through. And when it hits that sweet spot, what does it do? It just keeps on moving. You know, I always love that line from the movie, father and son are having an early morning coffee at the dinner table. And the father says, you know, those moments when everything just seems to be right and everybody's healthy and the finances are coming in, the business is doing all right and everything just seems good. And the son says, Dad... This is not that moment. (laughs) Even when it is that moment, it's only that moment for a moment. And then the pendulum swings on through. The oscillation continues. These great heroes of our faith, these characters of Scripture, are showing us how to navigate, showing us how to ride the waves of the oscillation. And this is what we need to pay attention to. My friend talked of her chemotherapy with a lightness and without a trace of self-pity. It was just matter of fact. This is what I did, eight hours today. You know? She's learned to surf, to ride the waves of the oscillations of the up and down in a way that she didn't have the capability to do seven or eight years ago. And then she posts this video, this dancing video, for the benefit of everyone around her. And then I looked back a little bit further, and there was this that she posted a couple of days before. It was a graphic, you know, one of those graphics. And it says, if he, dot, 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 makes you laugh, kisses your forehead, says he's sorry, makes an effort, holds your hand, works hard, attempts to understand you, then believe it or not, He's quite perfect. This is an expression of gratitude. Yes, she's in a relationship where she feels this way about her man, but this is an expression of gratitude. Not that everything is perfect, but that this is enough. This moment is enough. This moment takes me into the presence of my God. This is how you live the oscillation. This is how it works. Last Wednesday, when we were doing the first of the uh, retreating in place classes, uh, a question came up. 
as we were talking about faith, and someone said, you know, there's an adage in, in the recovery program about faking it until you make it. You know, is that, does that have any place in faith? And, and I said, you know, it, it actually it does. If we think that faith is going to be the absence of doubt, if we think faith is going to be absence of confusion, if we think faith is going to be absolute certainty forever and for more, then we're going to be really disappointed because the oscillation will continue. The doubt will reassert itself. The confusion, the uncertainty will always reassert itself. And it's supposed to. If you've never doubted your faith, then you haven't taken it seriously enough. You haven't pushed the envelope to the next level and the level after that. If we just stay what is familiar with what is comfortable, then we're never going to learn more about God, the next vista and the one after that that God is there to present for us. And so, yes, there is going to be times in our life when everything feels like it's stripped away, when everything feels gone, where relationships that you've held for years and years are suddenly absent, and you're going to feel that again. And what do you do? You continue as if. You fake it until you make it to that next crest, right? That's the way life is. There is no other way to do this. We have to understand I had shared in that Wednesday that this is what we're going through right now. Me, Marion, Nina, a lot of us, Frank, we had to close our treatment center last month. That's been something that's been going on for us for about eight years. You know, large chunk of income gone. But more than that, it's broken up the relationships that we had. People that we've been working with, you know, for nearly 10 years. People that we got used to seeing every day and being a part of their lives, being on the front lines and doing certain work that we just love doing. And suddenly that's gone. Replaced by what? I don't know. Nothing yet. Plus we had to move our, our, our facility over here and we have this beautiful room and this beautiful place. But it's different. We don't see the same people that we used to see before. It feels like that bottom part of the oscillation. It feels like a lot of loss over the last six months. And it's been a really difficult time for us. What do we do? Well, I think we learn from our heroes of faith. What I am learning about myself is that I'm only as good as the community that I maintain, the structure that I'm disciplined to, and the service that I continue to perform. I said some of this on Wednesday night and a woman came up to me afterwards and just thanked me for being honest. You know, she says, I never hear pastors talking about their struggles. You know, one thing we have to constantly reiterate in here is that we're all going through this together. No matter how together some of us may present ourselves, we're going through this together. Every single one of us is riding the oscillations up and down. And we never really know. Sometimes we telegraph it, sometimes we don't. But they are there. And to assume that they're not is to not be familiar with the way life works. And so, yes, we're going through it. But if we continue to work step by step as if certain things are true, like Peter did, like Paul did, like Barnabas did, we will carry on. There will not be an end to what we do. It will carry on. It may change forms. It may radically change forms, but it will carry on. If we continue to live 
as if we're God's beloved, as David did, and never lose sight of the fact that we are connected by God in ways that maybe we don't feel anymore. But those emotions will return if we continue to live as if, and if we remember the sound of our master's voice, if we remember to look and pay attention to the insignificant things, the tiny things, and to respond to those as Elijah did, we will ride the oscillation instead of being buried by it. There was a morning this past week that was particularly difficult for me, and I got a phone call, and it was someone that I wasn't expecting to call, and through that call, you know, at the end of the call, I realized, wow, I feel better. There was that gentle blowing. There was that small voice in this woman who had called me and was talking to me. And it made a difference. And then I look out the window and I see Marion filling all the bird feeders. She's becoming the bird lady out there. She lo- she's got socks filled with seeds for finches and she's got red juice in for the hummingbirds. And, and I just watch her out there and I'm looking, you know, my, my uh, office is in a loft and I'm looking down and she's just busy in the garden tending to the little things, the little things that are the big things, the little things that are the only things, really, if you think about it in life. And when I pay attention to those that I'm hearing that soft blowing and I'm being reminded that I'm still the beloved, I'm still David, and I'm being reminded that I can continue this work. That's how we learn to love the oscillation of life. And maybe you don't actually learn to love the oscillation, but you learn to love through the oscillation. And that makes all the difference. Let's pray. Father, I guess I suppose we should thank you for not even turning off the oscillation, for allowing us to go through the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs so that we can learn this deep thing that we're here to learn about you, about love, about relationship, about perseverance, about faith. That's why we're here. So we will assume that this world is exactly the way it's supposed to be, that the experience of our lives is exactly the way that they're supposed to be. And we will attempt to embrace our moments. We will attempt to continue to see you in our moments, wherever they are on our wish list. And we will learn to love through it all with your grace and with your help. So thank you, Father, for the example that you've given us in Scripture. Thank you for the example that you give us in others who are just living so amazingly well in spite of what they're going through. Thank you for them. Help us to be people like that, to just move through life with a trust that we can only experience in you. Thank you for loving us, Father. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.